the role of humans in the security operations center should move from we run the SOC and the machines are helping us to the machines are running the SOC and the humans are helping the machines. Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by SoftCat, the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on the detail. I'm your host, Zach Abbott, and in this episode, we have a very special guest who we'll be talking to about the evolution of the security landscape. Over the next 30-ish minutes, we'll be talking to the co-creator of one of the key components of modern IT security, the next-gen firewall. We'll be discussing how the industry has changed over the last 15 years, the key areas of security that you should be focusing on today, and how it's decided what the next developments in security will be. Joining me on today's episode is Nir Zuck, founder and CTO of Palo Alto Networks. Nir, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure, of course. I grew up in Israel, uh, which you might be able to hear from my accent. And uh, like everyone in Israel, I, uh, I had to join the military. They figured out that I was writing uh, viruses as a teenager in the mid-80s and decided to take me to the Israeli intelligence where I spent five years. There I met a couple of uh, uh, people a little bit older than me who then left the service before I did. They started their own company called Checkpoint, which is one of the first uh, cybersecurity vendors in the world. They joined them, I built a lot of the product at Checkpoint, moved to the US to start an engineering group for Checkpoint there. There I, uh, I left after a couple of years, started the first IPS, intrusion prevention, system company in the world, OneSecure, sold it to NetScreen, which then got sold to Juniper, left and started Palo Alto Networks, which today is the largest cybersecurity vendor in the world. Also joining us today is Explain It veteran Adam Luca, SoftCat's chief technologist for security. Welcome back, Adam. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. What episode number do you reckon this is now, Zach? Oh, off the top of my head, I'd say you've probably done about 16 with us now. <laughs> So as you well know, Adam, before we jump straight into the, the core of the show, I do like to ask a bit of an off-topic question to get to know you both a little better. So this episode's question, what is something unpopular that you enjoy? Uh, starting with Adam. Okay, so this one, I was racking my brain about something that I don't, the most people don't like that I love. And mine would have to be Brussels sprouts. I absolutely love them. I think they're amazing. I think they should be uh, the, the, the king of all vegetables. So there you go, Brussels sprouts for me. Nice. Fry them up with cream and bacon and no one is not liking those, let's be honest. <laughs> I think it's more cream and bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, Nia, how about yourself? I like to play the piano and for some reason when I do that, people uh, aren't uh, sticking around. <laughs> um, thanks very much guys thank you um so uh, right let's get straight into it so first things first uh near since your creation of the next gen firewall back in the 2000s how do you think the security landscape has evolved oh it evolved a lot it evolves all the time even before the next gen firewall in 2000 when i started in the industry like i said in the mid 90s uh, it was a very simple industry there were maybe 10 vendors five firewall vendors and five antivirus vendors. And as a customer, you had to pick one firewall, one antivirus, and you were happy. And then uh, 
more and more challenges started emerging. For some reason, the existing vendors decided to ignore those challenges. And a snowball that we're all familiar with today started where every time there was a new challenge, a new set of vendors was created, and you had to buy another solution. So, you know, since the early 2000s, we've had, uh, or mid-2000s when I started Palo Alto Networks, we're talking about 16 years. We have 16 more years of that evolution, more challenges, more vendors, more products, and so on. So I think that that's one thing. The second thing that probably changed uh, since the mid-2000s is the cloud. Now the cloud is everywhere. The pandemic has accelerated the move to the cloud because nobody wants physical infrastructure. That's uh, changing security quite a bit. Number one, I think that uh, the cloud presents opportunities for cybersecurity that didn't exist before because of the more structured way for developing and deploying applications, which enables what we call shift left, meaning doing uh, security well before applications are deployed. By the way, in Israel, we would call it shift right because we write right to left. (laughs) In Japan, it would be shift up because they write uh, from up to down. That's one thing that the cloud has changed. Another thing that the cloud has changed is we're seeing more and more organizations thinking about security as part of the development process versus the past where it was an afterthought. I think that's probably, and, and, and also the attack vector has increased because of the cloud. You know, we give more freedom to developers, they take the freedom and they make more mistakes and the bad guys enjoy it. So I think that, uh, that that's been a big change since the mid 2000s. And maybe the, the last change I'll mention is around uh, machine learning. We see more machine learning or like marketing likes to call it AI in different areas of life. And certainly we're seeing more and more of that in cybersecurity and things that used to be rule-based or signature-based or whatever you wanna call it in the past are shifting more and more towards uh, being data-based and and machine learning-based. And that's a trend that's going to continue to accelerate in the next years. It's interesting the point you make about the complexity of the security landscape, especially kind of that top point. Do you think um, as an industry, we've made it easy for customers at times, you know, when we look at actually almost the cybersecurity environment and the controls we put in are, are as complex, if not maybe more complex than the environments that they're protecting. And, and that means there's opportunities for gaps where people can make misconfigurations or kind of less than optimal settings. And do you think there's more that we can do as an industry, I guess, to help customers get the most out of what they're buying? I think we need platforms. You know, there's there's no other industry where we expect customers to use 50 different products and be successful at it. Trying to build something that makes sense out of 50 products, I think, is virtually impossible. We need to find a way to use many less products than we use today. And that requires a big change. It's a big psychological change, mostly. Uh, a lot of uh, cybersecurity professionals have been brought up by the industry, by the way, thinking that... Uh, Best of breed is is one of the most important things uh, to look for, and that if you don't, then you might you know get breached, and then looking back, you're going to be sorry for not buying the best product uh, in in a certain area. And and we also have the term defense in depth, which is another. I mean, we can argue about it forever. I'll show you that it doesn't mean really anything. And actually, defense in depth just makes things worse, not better because you open yourself to more configuration errors. You have more vulnerabilities in the products that you use and so on. So so we came up over the years with a lot of terms to convince customers that buying 50 different products from 50 different vendors is the right thing to do. And 
that's something that needs to be undone, not made sense of. That makes sense. And I guess it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because so much of the value the customer has in their environment is a is around the data that they have and the the kind of those cyber data silos where actually you end up with kind of a bit of sprinkling data here and a sprinkling of data over here and a sprinkling of data in the third place and then we kind of chuck a seam in you know somehow to try and aggregate and, and kind of make sense of all this stuff and but i guess unless we break those barriers down between those different cyber silos and actually see it as a kind of an integrated system you're just going to struggle to be able to kind of get a better view of the picture would you say yeah you're absolutely right adam and actually there are two different things here so so you see vendors that like you said work in silos and collect data from certain source like endpoint or network or cloud or SaaS, and do whatever they can with the data and they probably do a good job with that data it's just that uh, it doesn't make any sense. You want to look at all the data at the same time. You want to let machine learning have as many what we call features as possible, meaning data that is as detailed as possible. And the, the more detailed the data, the better machine learning works, both on the false positive and on the false negative side. So, so you have those siloed vendors that work one data source at a time. And on the other end, we have the aggregators, right? What we call the, the SIM vendors, like you know, Splunk and, and others, which for some reason gathers themselves into a corner where they charge for collecting the data versus doing things with the data. So those that are in a position to do things across all the data charge so much money for collecting the data that you cannot collect enough. And those that collect enough only do it in a specific silo at a time. And what we really need is something that combines both approaches, meaning we need to move the value from the data itself to the analytics. And then we need to do it across all data sources and at once. That's tough, right? You, you need to change two industries at once in, or sub-industries at once, and uh, it will happen. But uh, we're not there yet. Do you think there's, um, there's any onus on us as a cybersecurity industry to work better together because obviously there's we've always had alliances and technology integrations but but when you kind of look under the hood like should there be a common format should there be common standards you know how how do we kind of do the best for customers because obviously you've got the kind of platform approach which is very much the approach you take at Palo Alto Networks and you know you you kind of own end to end but it, do you think there is a a ground where you can have both like where you can have that innovation and breakouts but still have the integrated value yeah, for sure. Sorry, I have to talk about data again. I think data is one place where we can do that. If you look at a lot of the uh, cybersecurity startups, you'll see that they're raising they're raising unreasonable amount of money. You see, you see startups raising hundreds of millions of dollars and and selling two, three million dollars a year. That doesn't make any sense. And and the reason for that is that when you build a cybersecurity solution maybe 1% or 2% of your work actually goes to cybersecurity. All the rest goes into everything around it. Collecting the data, managing the data, GUI, you know, thing, licensing, things like that. If you count the, line, the, the number of uh, source code uh, lines that are dedicated to cybersecurity, you'll see that it's 1% or 2%. And each and every vendor in the industry has to spend the 100%, not the 2%, because of what you brought up, Adam, which is... There are no standards in the industry and everybody has to reinvent the wheel again and again and again. And I think that uh, data and, and the move to data, to data-based 
cybersecurity analytics is going to change that because you're going to have the data collected. As I said, the value is not going to be in the data itself. It's going to be in the analytics. Customers will be willing to spend money on analytics. The money they spend today on collecting the data, they will spend on analytics. And yeah, one of the vendors will collect the data, will not make a lot of money from it. And then everybody will make money from selling analytics on the same data. So that, that's happening. That is happening in the industry, I think. The other associated thought I always have about that is it's the customer's data. So we're, we're monetizing essentially their threat sensors, you know, their endpoints that's giving us the IOCs, that's giving us the, the information that we can then put into training models for machine learning and all that stuff. Like we would be nothing without their sensors if we were, you couldn't collect enough data to kind of create a solution that was actually effective without that customer information plugging into it. So almost by holding it back, we're, we want to take all the value, but we don't always want to give them the ability to, uh, to actually use the data that's rightfully theirs that was created and generated on their network. You're absolutely right. Companies that think like that, I don't think will last uh, for the long run. And if that's how the landscape has evolved and changed over the last 15 years, and they're the biggest key points, is there anything that's sort of stayed the same over that time or been ever present? You'll be surprised to hear that the adversaries haven't advanced as much over the last 15 years in terms of the techniques that they use. The techniques are not very different today than they were 15 years ago. They are more sophisticated. They use cloud freely or cheaply available compute in order to make the attacks more automated and stronger and so on. But at the end of the day, it comes to malware, it comes to exploits, it comes down to phishing, social engineering, and, and so on. So that actually remained relatively constant. What really changed is on the, it's on us, meaning we've made the infrastructure much more complicated and we increase the attack surface. You know, we, we give the, the adversaries more opportunities to attack us with the same techniques, more or less. They haven't changed that much. So with all that in mind, then, I guess it would be good to take a look at what organizations should be focusing on today. Let's say if you were in charge of the budget for another organization's security department, what would you be prioritizing? My number one priority would be security operations automation. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because we've reached a point where as an industry, we keep building more and more sophisticated cybersecurity solutions and more and more solutions that are based on machine learning and, and more and more solutions for not just keeping the bad guys out, but also finding them internally and so on. And we see our customers reaching a point where they just cannot operationalize that technology anymore. Once you move beyond the basics, meaning the firewall, the IPS, the URL filter, the antivirus, the identity and access management solution, vulnerability management solution, and maybe a few other things, operationalization becomes very, very challenging. And, and I think we reached a point where it's clear that the role of humans in the security operations center should move from, we run the SOC and the machines are helping us, to the machines are running the SOC and the humans are helping the machines. Kind of what's happening in driving, right? Uh, if you look at the cars that you've been buying over the years, 20 years ago, you, you could buy a car with very simple cruise control. 
right? You tell it to go 100 kilometers an hour, it will go 100 kilometers an hour. And if there's a car in front of you, it will crash into the car in front of you. And then we started adding more and more sophisticated tech, like adaptive cruise control, right? There is a car in front of you, it will slow down, it will accelerate, which is, by the way, 95% of what you do as a driver. You maintain a safe distance from the car in front of you. And now we're adding more and more ability to change lanes and so on, but this is still all technology that's helping you as a driver. And at some point, there's going to be a switch from this to, no, the car is driving itself and you're helping the car in situations when it just doesn't know what to do. And and I think cyber is going in that direction as well. We have no choice because we've reached a a glass ceiling in terms of that kind of technology that can be operationalized by humans. So so my number one advice to your listeners, to all the customers I talk to, is start automating your cybersecurity operations. Otherwise, we just can't sell you any more technology. Yeah, you almost we've reached a a point where it's so complex that the value is not really being had at that point. It's just not possible to keep up with it. It's quite interesting to see that evolution of that automated SOC. One of the things I, I often ponder is actually the capability Abilities and the training and enablement that we have, you know, there's always the talk of the cyber skills gap and, you know, the uh, lack of resource or do you think the industry, I guess, is keeping up and, and how, how would you think we need to adapt to kind of bring more people into the industry to train more people to, to give that knowledge, that background, that experience? Yeah, I think vendors need to help with that. And like we do and many other vendors do, we support educational programs in different, uh, at least universities and colleges, not in high school yet. Uh, We will do it in high schools as well. Yeah, we certainly need to help uh, raising a generation of cybersecurity experts. I'll tell you, those experts will have to change as well. Uh, Let's go back to data. I'm sorry, going back to data, it's just, it's a big, it's a big change that's happening in the industry right now. The security analysts in the future SOC are going to be less of an operator, which they are today, or malware reversers or whatever, and more data scientists. You know, we, we have to raise a generation of data scientists that are uh, also cybersecurity experts. And by the way, from experience within my company, within Palo Alto Networks, it's easier to take a cybersecurity expert and make them a data scientist than it is to take a data scientist and make them a cybersecurity expert. So certainly that's the path we're going to take. Look, just from a commercial uh, incentive, if we want to continue to sell to our customers, they need to be able to personalize the products, which means they need to find people that can operationalize it. If there aren't enough people, they won't be able to operationalize the products. They'll stop buying these products. We stop making money. So we certainly have a financial incentive as, as an industry to invest in raising a generation of uh, cybersecurity operators. Something you mentioned earlier, Nir, which I thought was a, a really good point, was around you know this kind of shift left and development and actually more and more organizations becoming development focused or creating digital platforms. Something I see a lot is, is a definite comfort gap, if not a skills gap between information security professionals and and the development community, you know, they they talk almost two different languages very often. The first, you know, the infosec professionals very much focus on protecting infrastructure, you know, protecting stuff that's deployed on on premise or even in the cloud, but very much deployed as a black box system. You know, they might have to update it, you know, but the vendor's going to kind of take care of most of that. But you see more and more organizations really trying to build their own 
applications and software. And, you know, there's a, there's a big divide at the moment, I think, between bridging that gap. Is that something you see? And, you know, I guess the talk about kind of shifting left is, is kind of, I guess, an infosec response to that. Yeah, there's certainly a gap. I'll tell you where the gap begins, in my opinion, what I've seen within our customer base. In order to take advantage of the benefits that the cloud can provide to you, you need to be less strict when it comes to your cybersecurity approach. Meaning, one of the advantages of the cloud is agility. You know, being able to develop software much faster, being able to deploy software much faster, and so on. That sometimes goes against InfoSec values because we need to give more freedom to developers, more freedom to DevOps, like you said, to deploy infrastructure, to use infrastructure in the cloud and, and so on. And I think that the biggest gap is around the inability of cybersecurity professionals to switch from a mode where they can enforce everything to a mode of trust verify and remediate. Traditionally on-premise, nobody can do anything in the data center without going to InfoSec engineering, getting down on their knees and begging them to open access to that service, open that port to the internet and so on. In the cloud, it's just not like that. In the cloud, we give more, I mean, we, we can make it like that, but then just don't go to the cloud, you're just going to lose money on your infrastructure, it's going to be more expensive. We go to the cloud because of the agility. InfoSec organizations that haven't learned, first, haven't internalized, and then learned how to deal with the, I'm not in control anymore, I don't have absolute control, I take more risk, and rather than enforce, I trust, verify, and remediate. Those organizations have a hard time coping with the cloud. And InfoSec organizations that have internalized the new approach and have realized that you put guardrails in the cloud that are somewhat permissive, and then you trust, verify, and remediate, those that have done that are doing an excellent job dealing with the cloud. Yeah, it's almost the opposite of, I guess, everyone at the moment is talking around zero trust and you know, ZTNA and, and SASE and other associates. So we've got this kind of one side, we've got zero trust and we're very much talking about not trusting platforms and you know authenticating and authorizing and and having adaptive trust on there but actually when we talk about human beings we have to trust humans you know we have to give people guidance we have to give them guidelines and guardrails to work with them but you also have to look the other person in the eye and say you're a professional you're you are doing your job i have to trust that you will do it right but i have to also be there that if something goes wrong We'll fix it and we'll we'll make it right and we'll do that in the shortest amount of time, shortest amount of time possible and you know, to reduce the impact or to minimize the, you know, the negative of that, because otherwise I guess you get to that point, like you say, where organizations have to only one person can make a call and that's InfoSec and then how the bottleneck that every decision. So imagine uh, I have to email, you know, I have to call Nir up now every day. I send an email to be like, Hey Nir, can you tell me that this is okay to send this email? Like you things would just fall apart. It would be crazy. Yeah, that doesn't work in the cloud. You can't send an email and ask for a permission to bring up a VM every time you want to bring up a VM. It's not going to happen. Okay, and the next question, possibly slightly off topic, but what is the biggest threat you're seeing organizations face today? I think the complexity, not just the complexity of the cybersecurity infrastructure, it's the complexity of the infrastructure as a whole. Yeah, the cloud is complex. 
wide area networks are becoming more and more complicated, you know, speaking of SASE, right? Everything is becoming more complicated because we're getting more connected, we're getting more distributed, things that have been accelerated by the pandemic, work from home and, and, and so on. It's much more complicated today to secure the infrastructure because the infrastructure is much more complicated. That's the biggest threat. The biggest threat is the complexity. We're not going to fix necessarily the complexity of the infrastructure. We should, part of it. What we're going to do is to use more and more automation and just keep humans out of the loop. Do you think we're there, we ever run the risk there where you, you're kind of just abstracting that complexity to the next layer so that your automation becomes so complex that you can't, you can't understand the automation or, or validate what it's doing? Probably. Look, there are two types of automation which are, I think, applicable when it comes to security operations. The first one is what's called process automation or, or playbook-based automation, where you have a procedure and you automate the procedure, and, and those are easy. An employee sends an email to the SOC suspecting it's phishing. There is a procedure for figuring out if it's phishing or not. You look at the links in the email and you, s- you look at the reputation of the websites that they point to. You look at uh, threat intelligence sources about the websites that they point to, and based on that, you make a decision whether it's phishing or not. And if it's phishing, there is a procedure for dealing with that. That can be automated with process automation. You just go one process at a time and you automate it. There, I don't think we're going to have an issue with uh, the automation becoming a beast that you just don't understand anymore. Then there is the automation for everything that doesn't have a process. Things like taking different events from the infrastructure and combining them into incidents, prioritizing the incidents, investigating the incidents, hunting for incidents, and so on. Those don't have a process. They depend on adversary actions. They depend on different things. And of course, if you want to automate those, you need machine learning. You collect data and you use machine learning. And there, the the challenge you're talking about, Adam, is very, very real. Even today, when the machine, right, the machine learning, the machine makes a decision, it's impossible for humans to understand why the machine made that decision. Because that decision is based on hundreds of millions, billions, tens of billions of data points. And there's just no way a human can go through all these data points and figure out why the machine made a decision. And we don't have good tools, not just as an industry in general, machine learning is pretty new and you don't find a lot of good tools for helping humans understand why the machines made the decisions that they made. And in cybersecurity, that's a challenge, you know, starting to trust the machine, especially when you know that still connectivity is more important than security, meaning, you know, getting breached, okay. Bringing down the business for 30 minutes because you made the wrong decision, that's a big no-no. This trusting the machine and, and providing tools for understanding why the machines do what they do, we still have a long way to march before we get to where uh, we want to be. And I guess that's where you have to kind of accept that if the limitation is we we can't at the moment understand how the machine made the decision, we can at least model the impact of the decision that it's made. So we can say, well, you know, it's okay to take one endpoint offline without telling me, but actually if you're going to shut down the whole company, I want a human to say yes or no on that on that decision. Yeah, yeah. And then understanding the decision is hard. And the crazy thing is that's not a cybersecurity problem. You know, you, th- you, talk, you talked earlier about cars that drive themselves. If, you know, understanding how vehicles will or, or other types of machines that use 
AI or ML to make decisions will become increasingly important for us as a society more generally than just cybersecurity, really. So we've talked quite a bit about how the security landscape's changed and what organizations should be potentially uh, focusing on or prioritizing at the moment. But something we'd quite like to know, Nir, as someone who is at the very forefront of the development of new security technologies, is how is it that you decide which areas you'll focus on next? So, so to decide what to focus on next, there are different things we need to do. The first one is we don't own all the intelligence in the cybersecurity industry. And one of the, the upsides of having thousands of vendors in the industry, right, there are a lot of downsides, we talked about those in the beginning. One of the upsides is that there's a lot of innovation. And when we see something that is very innovative and it makes a lot of sense, especially if we start seeing traction for that idea within, within our customer base, then yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We'll try to acquire it. Uh, and, and if we can't, then, then we'll try to build it ourselves. So that's, that's only one important uh, way for deciding what to do next. And uh, the other one, of course, is innovation internally. Meaning, you know, we have 2,000 engineers and, or product people, and yeah, they, they come up with a lot of ideas about what to do next. The third thing is, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of depend on the adversaries. They keep coming up with new, new crazy ways to do things. Uh, still, uh, they're using old techniques. Like t- Take, for example, uh, ransomware. You know, what is ransomware? Get the user to download a piece of malware. You know, we've been doing it for the, I mean, the adversaries have been doing it for the last 25 years. You know, so get, get the user to download a piece of malware and, and run it on, on the endpoint. And then encrypting the endpoint is easy, right? And, and how do you get them to download it? Through phishing or drive-by downloads. All these techniques have been around for 20 years, right? There's nothing new in it, but it's a new thing that they do. And, you know, we started seeing a lot of customers uh, getting hit by it. And there is something specific that we can do for ransomware that, that we developed, right? So we developed something specific to deal with ransomware. It's, yeah, we can deal with ransomware with the generic anti-phishing and the generic anti-malware and so on and, and take care of 99.99% of the incidents, whatever the, the number is. But that still leaves some of our customers in the 0.001% or whatever the number is. There are other things we can do. So we look at the problem. How do you do it? We figure out how to do it. We do it. We send it to our customers. So the, the first vector for uh, innovation is our own employees. The second one is we see what other uh, well-funded startups do. And the third one is we kind of depend on uh, the adversaries and their innovation. Okay, then. So, well, jumping forward then um, with that in mind, and I think you sort of alluded to it at the start of the conversation as well, over the next five years, how do you see the security landscape changing? I don't know. Nobody knows. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. <laughs> There's certainly going to be some trends that, that we see, right? The, the consolidation. I think we are going to see more and more consolidation around platforms. You're going to see more and more automation. I mean, these are necess- necessities. But at the end of the day, we really uh, depend on the adversaries, the bad people out there and what they're going to do and how they're going to innovate. It's all about us being agile and being quick to respond to whatever they do uh, versus telling you today where I think it's going to be five years from now. I wonder if um, previously the innovation, as you say, potentially driven by more criminal tractors, whether the 
proliferation of state-sponsored and other more sophisticated threat actors that have larger resource pools of whether that's financial, you know, resources, whether that's time invested. I'm not saying, you know, they're going to only target potentially a smaller subset of, of customers, but actually a mimicry. So you kind of see, you look up there and say, look at like what that well-funded nation state attacker is doing. And then you work out how you imitate that. And almost that starts to drive a, a cycle of innovation within the threat actor group, because actually, you know, you've got the top tier threat actors who are doing stuff that you could only do if you had supercomputers that actually given 10 years time, five years time might become achievable on average hardware or, and that sort of drip down effect. Do you, do you perceive that to happen at all, Nir? Yeah, for sure. Look, we've had solar wind late last year. And uh, I think yesterday or the day before that, we heard about a new, supply chain based attack around code cov right code coverage uh, vendor and we're going to see more of that it seems like na- nation state sponsored this from its sophistication okay now as an industry we have to start dealing with that again they they are you know the one dictating what we have to do we have now to deal better with supply chain security and we will as an industry it's not our choice it's an unusual um scenario isn't it or at least unusual to my mind it's probably one of the only areas where you're really seeing private companies almost going up against state sponsored or state supported or entities almost this usually you expect to see you know potentially countries fighting countries and those but actually there are elements where we're starting to see private organizations need to defend against that level of sophistication yeah, no, so we're seeing that. Some countries have also centralized organizations that are trying to deal with that and help the country. I'm in Israel right now. Israel has one national cyber center. The UK has one, NCSC. A few countries do that. You're right. I'd like to see countries do more and help more and also use diplomacy to try to change things. One of the more upsetting things in, in nation-state attacks is that there are a few countries, we're going to leave them unnamed, that use cyber warfare to help local industry. In the US, in the UK, you're not going to see the government breaking into a foreign corporation and stealing their secrets and handing it to you know, local industry in order to compete. And in some countries it does happen. And that's to me the one thing that we need to, to take care of. Perfect. Adam, before we finish, do you mind just giving us sort of a quick summary of what we've talked about? 10 seconds. We kicked off with Nir talking a little bit about some of the things that changed during his time in the the industry. And one of the things we really focused on there was just how complicated it is both to defend your environment, given the number of technologies you've got deployed, but potentially how complicated the cybersecurity environment is. We talked a little bit about the need to to move away from data silos and aggregate our security platform together to to give us the the best chance of unifying that and and how fundamentally human beings are going to need to become second fiddle to computers uh, in the sock and actually we're going to need to be the the helpers of the computers rather than the computers being helpers of us. We then talked about how development and and shift left and are, are focused on or those types of technologies will be important for organizations moving forward and actually how as an industry we can innovate but we are really always going to be following and, and chasing those threat actors as they evolve so you know we really broad set of uh, topics but one of the things for me that brings that all together is we've got to be driving for simplicity we've got to be driving for automation and i think we we've got to be adaptable 
And I think if we can be those three things, we're, we're likely to be successful with in, in implementing effective cybersecurity environments. Smashed it. Thanks, Adam. Well, that is all we've got time for on this episode. Near Adam, thank you so much for your time. It's been genuinely really interesting to hear your thoughts on everything today. Uh, and thank you for listening. If you want to know more about anything that was covered in this episode or want to get in contact with us, feel free to email us at podcast at softcat.com. Make sure you click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd also really appreciate you giving us a review or a comment on whatever podcast platform you use. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to Explain It From Softcat. Softcat.